thus far and no further. That's all Mozart managed to write of the Lacrimosa from his Requiem, his last work. It's perhaps the most poignant fragment in all music, and given that Lacrimosa means weeping, you may well feel that when you consider how Mozart might have continued. But hold on a minute. I imagine that there are many of you who've heard and got to know, and possibly even sung in Mozart's Requiem. If so, you're probably thinking, but it doesn't end there. In just about every performance, there's a compelling continuation. So if Mozart didn't write that, who did? Well, that's a subject of much dispute, and it's by no means over yet. First, though, here's the background story. If you've seen the film Amadeus, you'll probably know how Mozart's bitterly envious rival Antonio Salieri, disguised in deathly black robes, commissioned the Requiem so that he could spy on Mozart at work and perhaps even pass off the music as his own. It's a myth. But as with many myths, there's a partial grounding in reality. A mysterious stranger did, in fact, commission the Requiem. But this mysterious stranger was a servant of the very real Austrian Count Franz von Walsegg. The secrecy was important. Walsegg had a habit of commissioning works from eminent composers and passing them off as his own. And this time, what he really wanted was a memorial for his recently deceased young wife, Anna. It seems that his grief was deep enough. Mozart may not have liked the terms and conditions, but he needed the money. So despite his failing health, he set to work on this grand setting of the Requiem Mass. The evidence suggests that Mozart had no idea that he would be composing his own Requiem. Yet the presence of death, of loss and dread is potent right from the sombre-hued opening.
colouring there is unique. Mozart uses only the dark-hued woodwind instruments, the basset horns, that's really a kind of tenor clarinet, and bassoons. It's all very Mozart. In fact, he loved the basset horn. But that brings us to the question of what is genuine Mozart in the Requiem. Mozart didn't live to complete the score. But instead of leaving it as a fragment, his widow Constanza, who was now in real peril of poverty, asked Mozart's friend and ex-pupil Franz Zeva Sussmeyer to complete the score so that she could pass it off as Mozart and take the money. Sussmeyer even forged Mozart's signature at the end of the score. The story was put about, no doubt strongly encouraged by Constanza, that Sussmeyer was really following Mozart's directives, that Mozart and he had talked together and played through ideas for the Requiem, and that Sussmeyer was able to follow these instructions when Mozart died. How else could you explain the power and beauty of Sussmeyer's completion? It utterly outclasses any of Sussmeyer's original compositions, at least the ones I've heard. Surely there has to be a core of real Mozart, even in the bits that Sussmeyer completed. But the evidence suggests a different story. Very little sketch material survives for the Requiem, but rather disturbingly, one sketch that does survive clearly wasn't used by Sussmeyer. Do you remember that beautiful lacrimosa that we heard left as a fragment at the beginning of the programme? The familiar version, completed by Sussmeyer, ends like this, culminating in a big, solid Amen. Many have sung, played, or listened to that, and thrilled to it as Mozart. There seems little question that it's good enough to be Mozart, and yet it's almost certainly not Mozart. In the Requiem text, the Lacrimosa is the end of the biggest and most dramatic section of the liturgy. It's called the Sequence, also known as the Dies Irae. This deals with the terrifying and heart-rending images of the Christian Day of Judgment. It was typical in the liturgical music of the time to end this section with a grand fugue, and Mozart's sketch suggests that he was preparing to end his sequence with an imposing double fugue. Actually, only the first six and a bit bars of that are Mozart's sketch. The continuation is by the outstanding American musicologist, performer and composer Robert Levin. Levin uses the rules of counterpoint as extant in Mozart's day and a pretty thorough knowledge of Mozart's style. But if Sussmeyer didn't use the fugue sketch, it may well be because he wasn't entirely confident of his own contrapuntal skills. It's certainly noticed that the one fugue in the Requiem that we can be pretty sure Mozart 
didn't compose is rather clumsy technically. It's the Osanna fugue that follows the Sanctus and Benedictus sections. It's also surprisingly short. Imagine Sussmeyer getting to the end and thinking, phew, I think that'll just do. Robert Levin is one of those people with mixed feelings about Sussmeyer's completion. It's difficult to dismiss outright a version that's been known and loved as Mozart for two centuries. And yes, it is impressive. But there are things in it that we can be reasonably sure aren't Mozart, and perhaps even one or two that could be improved on. Robert Levin has made his own version of the Requiem, incorporating that Amen fugue and appropriately longer versions of the Sanctus fugues that we've just heard. And that's the version that we're going to hear tonight. Apart from the obvious discrepancy with Mozart's intentions in the Amen fugue and the pretty clear inadequacy of Sussmeyer's realisation of the Sanctus fugue, are there any other places where we can hear Sussmeyer's original not quite living up to Mozart's high ideals? Robert Levin thinks there are quite a few, and there's one I agree with wholeheartedly, and it's so easily put right. Let's go back to that beautiful lacrimosa, and to the point where Sussmeyer apparently takes over from Mozart. It's impressive, but what about the big build-up that follows, and particularly the high point of that build-up? <laughs> sudden change of harmony at Quaeris Surget is very impressive. That could easily be Mozart. And so too could the way the vocal phrase falls then strains upwards. And now surely we expect And no, Sussmeyer gives us a rather pathetic fall. Pathetic, that is, in the modern sense. I can remember the first time I heard that passage, still believing innocently that this was authentic Mozart, asking myself why on earth he pulled his punch like that. Robert Levin is clearly one of many who feels the same, and his version, the one we're hearing tonight, gives us the grand full climax. <laughs> Thank you. 
Up to the Lacrimosa movement, you probably won't notice any significant differences from the traditional version of Mozart's Requiem, apart perhaps from a few touches of scoring. Sussmeyer actually completed Mozart's orchestration, which was pretty fragmentary even in the completed sections, especially when it came to the trumpet and drum parts, and it could be argued that some of his additions are a bit crude. But it's after the first eight bars of the Lacrimosa that you start noticing the differences. Of course, there's that big Amen fugue, perhaps the most audacious divergence from the famous Sussmeyer version. But nevertheless, the changes continue. I'd better prepare you for the beginning of the Sanctus. This is the first real burst of bright light in this often very dark requiem. After the big choral shouts of the word Sanctus, holy, Sussmeyer, or perhaps I should say probably Sussmeyer, adds some little repeated chordal figures on strings. <laughs> Robert Levin, once again, that's just too crude to be genuine Mozart. Levin adds something much more rococo, little dancing violin figures. <laughs> And so on into Robert Levin's expanded Hosanna Fugue. I must stress that those violin figures there are pure conjecture on Robert Levin's part, and they may take some adjusting to. Nevertheless, if you go back to the Sussmeyer version after hearing that, it does sound rather plain. The next big alteration by Robert Levin also makes musical sense. The Requiem, according to standard practice, brings back that Hosanna fugue after the Benedictus section. This is the point in the Requiem Mass at which the host is elevated and transubstantiation is supposed to take place. The Benedictus is almost certainly pure Sussmeyer, yet it does have a very beautiful Mozartian melody. All Levin does here is tidy up some of Sussmeyer's contrapuntal accompaniment. suggests that Sussmeyer wasn't just scared of complex counterpoint, he was also a bit diffident when it came to modulation, moving from one key to another. This is apparent in the Requiem because he does something very untypical of the time, and indeed untypical for Mozart. The Benedictus, appropriately enough, is in a new key, and it's one that's relatively distant from the key of the Sanctus, a bright D major. But the Benedictus is in a warmly contrasting B-flat major. Mm -hmm. 
Now, classical formal balance dictates that we go back to D for the second Osana fugue. But that involves quite a difficult modulation, and Sussmeyer ducks out. He has his second fugue in the same key as the Benedictus, B-flat. And this has annoyed a lot of musicians and commentators. So Robert Levin engineers a striking transitional passage to bring us back to the true home key for the return of the fugue. So there's another passage in which we can at least say that Levin's version is probably closer to what Mozart might have written. On the whole, though, it is striking that Levin does largely respect what Sussmeyer composed. Even if some of the ideas are purely Sussmeyer, they're very impressive and memorable, and people have performed and appreciated them as Mozart for so long. The beginning of the Agnus Day, for instance, has a nervous intensity, an urgency. If it's Sussmeyer, then he did his teacher proud. And here, Levin is very respectful. There's just one slight correction to Sussmeyer's counterpoint that one or two of you may have noticed there. It's the basses line on that deep dawner. You may agree with that or not. One thing I'm very glad of is that Robert Levin respects Sussmeyer's solution for the ending of the Requiem. Requiems in Mozart's day often ended with fugues. Michael Haydn's powerful Requiem in C minor, for instance, a work which left a deep impression on the young Mozart, also ends with a grand fugue. There are memories of Michael Haydn at several points in the authentically Mozart parts of the Requiem. Sussmeyer, as we've seen, was a bit scared of big fugues, but at this point he has a brilliant idea, and frankly, whether it's his or Mozart's doesn't really matter to me. He brings back the magnificent Kyrie fugue from much earlier on, and with just a little adjustment, it fits the words cum sanctis tuis very well.
And so the Kyrie fugue returns to round off the Requiem. If that idea was Sussmeyer's, then it was an idea of genius. And it's not the only one, even if Sussmeyer's realisation is sometimes technically imperfect. By general consent, Sussmeyer wasn't one of the great composers of the classical era. But his completion of Mozart's Requiem is a reminder that even so-called ordinary mortals can have moments when they rise above themselves, transcend their normal modes of being or working. As Robert Levin has shown, he still sometimes needs a bit of help. But he was undeniably a composer of the right period, one who knew his master's style well, and I'm glad that Robert Levin has also respected that. Levin's version is in fact a triple composite. What was originally Mozart plus Sussmeyer now becomes Mozart plus Sussmeyer plus Levin. Still, and this is the extraordinary thing, it sounds like the expression of one great idea. And that idea, however much it was shared or elaborated by others, is surely in essence Mozart's. <laughs> 